Hello and welcome to a completely new podcast, What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, with me, Liz Tucker. In this first episode, I'm going to be joined by Professor Joanna Moncrief, the lead author of a recently published study in molecular psychiatry, which found no convincing evidence for the idea that low serotonin levels are connected with depression. And we go on to talk about how different researchers have looked at largely the same clinical trial data, leading one group to claim that SSRI antidepressants do work, and another that they don't. So how can both of those things be true? And Joanna discusses emerging research from the sexual medical literature, which she says suggests that around 50% of those taking SSRI antidepressants may suffer sexual problems. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to explain a little bit about me. I've begun this podcast because I believe that too much medical journalism is simply becoming PR and that there's less and less journalistic rigour and scrutiny of the facts. You see, it seems to me that often medical stories explain the science behind an innovation, typically how something is supposed to work or be effective, but there's frequently little investigation into the accuracy of those claims, and critically important factors such as who funded the work and potential conflicts of interest are often overlooked. The example I gave in a recent Substack article was... If you can imagine there was a company operating, say, in the sugar industry, and they put out a press release saying that we should all eat more sugar, then I think without a doubt, people would start to ask questions and journalists would be asking about conflicts of interest. But somehow those same questions are not asked if, for example, a pharmaceutical company puts out a press release promoting a drug. That's not to say that there's not important and relevant information produced both by the pharmaceutical industry and other industry bodies. But it simply means that we should apply the same levels of journalism to this as we would in any other area of reporting. And in my experience at the moment, that just doesn't happen. And now a little about my background. I'm a medical journalist and former BBC producer and director, and I've also made programmes for my own company. My productions have won a number of prestigious awards and have been shown in over a 100 countries. But rather than me boring you about my background, if you'd like to go to my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, you can find out more about me there. And finally, as I'm sure you can understand, producing a podcast like this, providing unbiased, rigorous, well-researched science, is expensive to do. So if, in the coming weeks, you feel able to support the podcast, I would really welcome that. You can support the pod at patreon.com slash you. And you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And now back to the interesting bit, the interview with Joanna. Professor Joanna Moncrief is a practising psychiatrist and Professor of Critical and Social Psychiatry at University College London. She's also a founder member and co-chair of the Critical Psychiatric Network, a group of psychiatrists sceptical of the idea that mental disorders are simply brain diseases. This is the interview with Joanna. So, Joanna, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Depression is a word that we all use, I think, in the colloquial sense. What do you as a psychiatrist mean by depression? I think that's a really good question, and I'm not sure that psychiatry knows what it means by depression, actually. The conventional answer is that it's a condition that is characterised by a pattern of symptoms, which are listed in various diagnostic manuals 
And when someone ticks a number of those symptoms, they qualify as having depression. In my view, that's actually not a very useful approach. There are patterns of behaviour that we refer to as depression. I'm not sure that it's that useful to regard it as a medical disorder in the same way that we might regard flu or tuberculosis or lung cancer as, as a medical disorder. Now, you've talked about the difference between a drug-centred approach and a disease-centred approach. What do you mean by those two things? The disease-centred approach is the idea that drugs for mental health problems work by targeting the underlying mechanisms that produce the symptoms of the disorder. Many, many people just assume that antidepressants must be working by somehow tweaking the underlying biology of depression. But there is an alternative way that antidepressants and other drugs for mental health problems are likely to be affecting people when they take them. And that's what I've called the drug-centered model. The drug-centered model is the idea that these drugs are active drugs that produce changes to our normal brain chemistry and thereby change normal modes of thinking and feeling and behaving. So if we think about recreational drugs like alcohol or cannabis, for example, we know that these drugs change brain chemistry and that those changes in brain chemistry have effects on people's thinking and feeling and behavior. So if you take alcohol, for example, we have this expression that it you know, that you can drown your sorrows in alcohol. We, we know that alcohol makes people feel temporarily euphoric and that, that those euphoric feelings can suppress underlying feelings of sadness temporarily. That that effect is not because alcohol is correcting any underlying abnormality. It's because of the mental changes that alcohol induces. And those are changes to our normal brain chemistry. They're not changes that are reversing any underlying abnormality. So the drug-centered model, I think it highlights that sometimes drugs can have useful effects by suppressing underlying unpleasant or difficult feelings with preferable drug-induced effects. But it emphasises that these effects are produced by changing the normal state of the brain. And therefore, drugs may have harmful consequences, especially when they are taken in the long term. So when the new class of antidepressants were introduced, the SSRIs, which are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, it was suggested that they worked by boosting serotonin levels. But your recently published review study suggests that that's actually not the case. That's right. The idea was that the SSRI drugs would boost levels of serotonin and therefore effectively treat or improve depression. And it's been rumoured for many years that actually the evidence for this theory is not that strong, even though many thousands, millions of people across the world have been given the impression that links between serotonin and depression are well established. So what we did in our recent review was to gather together the research on all the different major areas of research into depression and serotonin and look at them. And that includes research on serotonin levels and serotonin metabolites, research on serotonin receptors in the brain, the serotonin transporter, that's the protein that removes serotonin from the nerve cell synapses where it's active serotonin genes, and also studies that have experimentally lowered serotonin in people and looked at whether that produces depression or low mood in, in volunteers. We got together all the research in those different areas and found that none of it 
showed convincing evidence of links between depression and serotonin, and certainly none of it confirmed the theory that depression is a result of low serotonin levels or activity. Given that the drugs were introduced in the 1980s, how has it been a tenet of belief for so long if we've had no good evidence that serotonin does have an impact? The reason that the idea that depression is due to low serotonin has become so deeply embedded in our cultural view is because there was a very strong and well-funded marketing campaign by the pharmaceutical industry in the 1990s, which put across this message very vigorously in advertisements that were aimed at the general public in countries where advertising to the general public is is legal, such as the United States and New Zealand. And they also targeted doctors, basically established this idea in the minds of the public and in the minds of the medical profession that depression is related to low levels of serotonin and that SSRIs work by correcting this deficiency. But what was the evidence that was being used to market the drugs? The whole idea was really an assumption, basically, that the antidepressants were effective and therefore depression must be something to do with the biological changes that the antidepressants produced. There were some early receptor studies that suggested that there was differential activity of serotonin receptors in people with low mood and some of these serotonin depletion studies. But basically, as more and more research got done, it became apparent that actually there were no consistent findings in any of these areas of research. Now, the Science Media Centre, which is funded by a variety of groups, including universities, the government and a number of pharmaceutical companies, has collected expert responses to your work, which I think it's fair to say have largely been critical. So can I read you first the comments of Professor David Nutt? Yes. He says, and I quote, This matter of you covers much of the work done over the past 50 years to explore the relationship of the serotonin system to depression. Unfortunately, all of these variables are indirect measures of serotonin function, or even worse, merely proxies for serotonin activity. It's only recently we've developed the technology to measure serotonin release in the living human brain. And in the first study of this type, currently under review, we did find decreased serotonin release capacity in people with depression. So to dismiss the serotonin hypothesis of depression at this point is premature. We can always do more research on serotonin and indeed on other receptors and other aspects of brain function. And that could go on forever. So we we can keep saying forever, well, it still might be, it still might be, we still might find an abnormality in this or that or some new way that some new technique of measurement and that's true but it it just needs to be emphasized that that is speculation it's a possibility that that has not been proven one study as we know very well from looking back at all the studies that have been done in these other areas of research on serotonin proves nothing at all because often Initial studies, everyone's terribly enthusiastic, are reported positively, and then negative studies come along later when when everything's settled down a bit. So it it, it doesn't, to my mind, change things at all. And I think we should emphasise that people have been looking at various indicators of serotonin activity for a good 30 or 40 years now and have not so far 
uncovered any convincing evidence of an abnormality using all these different techniques. Professor Nutt's argument is that technology has become more sophisticated, so therefore we may be able to measure things that in the past we weren't able to measure. Yes, and, and we might, but as I say, I think it's important to emphasise that that is speculation at the moment. Nothing is proven. And we can go on on speculating, but maybe at some point we have to draw a line and say, actually, we've done a lot of research into the biology of depression and we haven't yet come up with anything that convincingly demonstrates an abnormality, certainly not that convincingly demonstrates abnormality that could be corrected by drugs. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists, in its comments to the Science Media Centre, include its position statement on antidepressants. This says, the primary mode of action for most antidepressants is to target monoamine neurotransmitter function. The original idea that antidepressants correct a chemical imbalance in the brain is an oversimplification, but they do have early physiological effects and effects on some aspects of psychological function. They can induce changes in the function of brain areas that are associated with the improvement in depressive symptoms. In animal studies, they've been shown to increase the number and function of brain cells and the connections between them. So there's a lot to unpick in that statement. The first thing is, yes, antidepressants affect monoamines, affect various brain chemicals. But as we don't know that there is an underlying abnormality of those brain chemicals, the thing that they should have said is that antidepressants change normal brain chemistry. We don't know that they are working by correcting any abnormality, but we do know that they change normal brain chemistry. Now, that should make us a bit worried. Taking drugs that change brain chemistry can often have harmful consequences, especially if you take them for long periods of time. That's not to say that antidepressants might or other drugs might not be useful occasionally, but it is to say that it does mean we should be super cautious about them. So that's the first thing. The second thing about their statement is, yes, antidepressants do change mental states and behaviour by changing brain chemistry. They do affect us. They are not inactive drugs. And they do have psychological effects. No one has bothered to look at these in great detail. Commonly, drug trials run for six to eight weeks. There there are very few studies, more than three months. The sort of research that could really tell you about the sort of mental and behavioural changes that antidepressants produce would be research giving volunteers these drugs for a reasonable period of time and doing a very detailed assessment of how the drugs affected or changed their normal feelings, thinking processes and behaviours. And those studies haven't been done. What we do have, though, is a lot of reports from people who've taken them from patients that they have subtle emotional and mental changes, which are often recorded as side effects. So some of them make people feel a bit lethargic and a bit groggy, for example. Not all of them, but some of them do. And a lot of them seem to have an effect that is reported as emotional blunting. People say that they feel either a bit cut off from their emotions or that their emotions are muted or blunted in some way, both negative emotions like depression and anxiety, but also positive emotions like happiness and joy. The final thing to say when they mention that 
Antidepressants have been found to increase neuroplasticity and increase connections between cells. We haven't done a review of that literature, so I don't feel qualified to comment on it in detail, but I would just mention one thing about it. Drugs that cause damage to the brain and conditions that cause damage to the brain, like dementia and other neurodegenerative conditions, cause increases in neuroplasticity as a response to the damage that is being done. So indications that there is increase in neuroplasticity or increase in the dendritic spine connections in the brain in response to antidepressant use does not necessarily indicate that what they are doing is beneficial. It may actually be a sign that they are having harmful effects on the brain. We don't know. A lot of people have looked at the study and said, well, yes, serotonin may not be involved, but we know that antidepressants are still very effective. So I thought it was worth looking at two large meta-review studies that have taken place. There was the original meta-review in 2008 by Kirsch et al., which looked at a wide range of antidepressants and said that although they saw a small statistical difference between the active drug and those taking the placebo, that wasn't great enough to be clinically significant. Review that got a lot of publicity at the time. And then 10 years later, another group of scientists do another meta-review. They have a slightly wider pool of studies that they looked at, and that's by Ziprani et al. This time, they also see a small statistical difference. In fact, a smaller statistical difference between the placebo and the active drug that the 2008 group find. But this time they say this is evidence that the antidepressants do work. So how can those things both be true? Yes, I think highlighting those two studies is a really clever way of making the point that the same data can be interpreted in very different ways in science and particularly in psychiatry and the field of mental health. There have actually been numerous meta-analyses now of all the trials that compare antidepressants and placebo, and they all find very similar, very small differences between antidepressants and placebo, which amount to around about two points on a 52-point depression rating scale. And some people conclude from that that they are certain to be, you know, they are certainly effective, that we have conclusive proof that they're effective. Some people think that difference is not clinically important and also could be produced by artefacts of the research such as unblinding effects. So although these trials are meant to be double blind and therefore control for the the expectancy and hope that people derive from taking a pill, from being prescribed a pill that they are told might help them, Often people can detect whether they're taking the real antidepressant or the placebo. So so there are side effects that might give people cues, but also people just might feel subtly different when taking a drug, which they may not even report as side effects, but they may still be aware that they feel different and, and therefore are taking a drug. And particularly people who've taken antidepressants before might be able to detect whether they're taking the active drug or placebo. In fact, there's a couple of studies that show this small effect between drugs and placebo in people who have taken antidepressants before, but not in people who haven't. The explanation may be that people who've taken antidepressants before 
recognise whether they're getting the active drug or the placebo. And then the people who get the active drug get an amplified placebo effect because they think, oh, I've got the real thing. There's good evidence that people's expectations about what they're getting, whether they're getting an active drug or not, strongly influence their chances of improvement. Historically, I think there were studies that used what are called active placebos. So these are placebos that mimic some of the side effects of the active drug. So, for example, dry mouth. And these studies, I think, showed a smaller difference between the active placebo and the active drug. Yes, most of those studies showed no no significant difference between the active drug and placebo. But they're not done anymore. I think in the 1960s and 70s, people were, were still asking questions about the drugs that we use for mental health problems like antidepressants and were still not sure really whether they were that useful or not. And we're looking at the methodology of studies and thinking what might explain these effects. I think it's also worth looking at what we mean by clinical significance. You mentioned the, the questionnaire known as the Hamilton questionnaire. And the difference between the active drug and the placebo was two points on the questionnaire. which asks you things like, do you have trouble sleeping? Are you eating properly? But to actually get a clinical diagnosis it was thought you needed an eight-point difference on the scale. I published a paper a few years ago with the Harvard psychologist Irving Kirsch looking at an analysis that had been done by another group that compared changes on the Hamilton scale with ratings of general improvement. And it was found that a three-point difference on the Hamilton scale didn't register as showing any change in this scale that rated people's global improvement. And you needed at least an eight-point difference on the Hamilton scale to be registered as showing a mild degree of improvement on this general global rating of improvement. So we concluded from that you needed around about an eight-point difference to to show any clinically significant effect, and certainly that a three-point difference wasn't wasn't a clinically significant effect. Subsequently, other researchers have looked at other ways of looking at clinical improvement, clinically significant improvement. And they've also shown that you need at least a four, the sort of difference in Hamilton schools would be around between about four and eight points to show levels of clinically significant improvement. I should say that this all assumes that depression measuring scales are reliable and valid ways of measuring people's emotional state. And I would ask questions about that, really. I would question whether we really can measure an emotion in the same way that we measure blood pressure or measure levels of haemoglobin in the blood. So what we're seeing in these studies is that there's a statistical difference between the active drug and the placebo, but that may not be clinically measurable, i.e. a doctor wouldn't be able to tell the difference between those two groups of patients. Yes, that's absolutely right. Is the fact that some people suffer withdrawal problems when coming off these drugs because the SSRIs are making biological changes to the body or brain? The fact that long-term use of antidepressants causes a withdrawal syndrome, which can be very severe and disabling and prolonged for some people, indicates that these drugs are changing normal brain chemistry and normal brain functioning. 
it shows that the brain is trying to counteract their effects in some way, is adapting to their presence. And when you take the drug away, you get these adverse reactions caused by the changes that have occurred in the brain being no longer opposed by the presence of the drug. And the fact that these can be very prolonged, you know, should, should I think, make us worry about what antidepressants are doing to the brain. And we don't understand the basis of any of these effects. In the medical literature, there have been reports that these antidepressants can increase the risk of suicide. How common is that effect? Suicide, thankfully, is very rare, and even suicidal ideation and you know attempted suicide is fairly rare. So it's been very difficult to find the evidence on this. But it does seem there's more and more data suggesting that in younger people in particular, occasionally these drugs can make people suicidal, probably because they have this effect of inducing a state of agitation and restlessness and impulsivity. Thankfully, this state is quite rare and the extreme state where it tips people over into suicidal ideation and suicidal actions is quite rare, but it does seem from the data this does happen. So obviously, yes, we have to be particularly careful with prescribing these drugs to anyone we think um, has a risk of, of suicide and particularly young people, I would say young people, even if they don't have any risks, because this effect has particularly been shown to occur in younger people. One of the other issues that's been reported is sexual problems. It's well recognised that SSRIs cause sexual dysfunction while people are taking the medication in probably around about 50% of people who take them. They cause all sorts of sexual dysfunction, reduced libido, but also impotence and difficulty achieving orgasm because of probably reduced sexual sensitivity, which may be related to the emotional numbing effect that they produce as well. But the really worrying finding that has been coming out recently is that some people report that these some of these sexual effects continue after they have stopped taking the antidepressant. This is coming out actually in the sexual health literature rather than the mental health literature. People report that some of these effects are persistent, particularly reduced libido, but reduced sexual desire. But other effects as well can sometimes be persistent. And these effects can persist in some cases for months and for years and may be really quite difficult to treat and obviously very, very distressing for people, even if this problem of persistent sexual dysfunction is very rare. Antidepressants are being prescribed so widely nowadays. I think people really need to be aware of this when they're starting on an antidepressant. Some psychiatrists will say the drop in the libido is because they're still depressed. Yes, we we know that depression can cause sexual dysfunction and, and reduce libido particularly as well. But it is well recognised that SSRIs cause sexual dysfunction. And I don't think we should be surprised that the effects of SSRIs continue when people have stopped them. David Healy, who's another commentator and thoughtful writer, researcher on psychiatric drugs, has referred to the idea of legacy effects, how drugs can sometimes persist even when the drugs are stopped. We know that SSRIs affect sexual functioning. It shouldn't surprise us necessarily that those effects might continue past the point at which the drug is stopped. Today, one in six UK adults take an antidepressant. That seems a huge number. Across the world, we seem to be seeing an epidemic of depression. Why do you think that is? We've developed the idea that it is a good thing to 
classify mental health problems as, as medical problems and to treat them with medical solutions. And I would question that that is the most appropriate or helpful way to address these sorts of problems. There have been one or two studies that show that people who think their depression is due to a chemical imbalance actually have more pessimistic thoughts about their likelihood of recovering and certainly have less belief that they are able to help themselves to recover. The idea that depression is a medical problem and a chemical imbalance has become deeply embedded in our cultural psyche, I would say by now. And that's why people think it's the right thing to do to go to their doctor if they're feeling a bit down and are maybe less likely to think of their situation in in other terms, in non-medical terms, and think about other ways that they might address those problems. Some people have truly awful lives, which would make anyone feel depressed. But there is also a group of people who seem to have a happy home life, happy job, and do seem to develop depression, for which there's no obvious external factor. I mean, I would say that depression that is not, where there is absolutely no reason for it, is very rare, actually, in my experience. Even severe depression, most people, in most cases, there are some precipitants or some circumstances that make it understandable. Of course, people can't always identify what it is that is making them unhappy. And sometimes people need to be helped to identify those things. But in general, depression is a reaction to the circumstances that people find themselves in and the circumstances that they've been through in their lives, the, the things that have happened to them. And there's very strong evidence that people who have suffered from adverse life events such as child abuse, poverty, unemployment, divorce, parental neglect have higher risk, are more vulnerable of developing depression than than people who have not undergone these sort of events or, or have fewer of them. And it does seem in some cases that depression's becoming a long term chronic illness for many people. I don't know that we have good evidence that it is more chronic than it was, but we do know that an awful lot of people are taking antidepressants on a long-term basis for years, if not for decades, which suggests either that they're chronically depressed or that even though they get better, they are so anxious about stopping their medication and feel they desperately need it that they are unable to stop it. Uh, Or, of course, that they have become physiologically addicted to it, so they've tried to stop it, and they can't because they they experience withdrawal symptoms. Of course, a lot of people who experience withdrawal symptoms will mistake them for relapse or professionals will mistake them for relapse because withdrawal symptoms include low mood, but particularly anxiety. And people may think that they're having a a relapse when they experience withdrawal symptoms. So so I, I think we may be perpetuating problems by enabling the situation where lots and lots of people end up on long term antidepressants. Given your perspective, what are the times when you would consider giving a patient an antidepressant? So I do prescribe antidepressants occasionally because they are recommended in NICE guidelines and I don't think it would be right to deprive patients I see of of things that are recommended in NICE guidelines. But I discuss with patients what I think antidepressants what sort of drugs I think they are, what sort of effects they might have on people. So I discuss the mental and behavioural changes that 
the, the little research we know on the sort of mental and behavioural changes that antidepressants induce. Particularly, I would talk about their emotional numbing effect. And I would have a discussion with patients about whether they might find those effects useful or not. I would also tell them about the randomised control trial evidence that, that antidepressants have a overall are a little bit better than a placebo, but not much. And I would also tell them that there are many people who would recommend antidepressants in their situation, if I think that is the case, obviously. Uh, so I, I would have those sorts of discussions with people and, and come to a decision in conjunction with them about whether they wanted to try to antidepressants or not. I always try and discourage people from taking antidepressants on a long-term basis because of the problems with dependency and withdrawal. So I would encourage people to review their effects regularly and not, not to see them as a long-term intervention. So what's your advice for people who want to reduce or come off their antidepressant medication? So the first advice is not to stop the medication suddenly. That's really important because we do know that some people can develop quite severe withdrawal effects. Withdrawal effects are probably most severe and problematic for people who've been on medication for many years. But it's important for everyone not to stop them suddenly. And if they do decide that they want to stop their medication, first of all, I would say, think about that decision carefully, talk to people about it, try and think, even write a list about the pros and cons of, of taking medication, what you think it's doing for you that might be helpful, what you think it's doing for you that, that is not helpful and might be harmful. And if after a really good consideration and discussion with various people, including preferably your doctor, you decide that you would like to try and stop your antidepressant medication, then that should be done very slowly and gradually and with the support of, of your doctor. And I would encourage people to look at the Royal College of Psychiatrists guidelines on stopping antidepressants, which outline how people can do this very, very slowly and also tailor the process to the level of withdrawal that they experience. So how would you like to see the treatment of depression change in the future? So I would like to see less emphasis on the idea of depression as a brain disease and, and less emphasis on biological treatments such as antidepressants and, of course, ECT, and more emphasis on helping people to identify and address the things that are happening in their lives that might be making them unhappy and depressed. And and also emphasis on general things that can that we know can improve mood, such as exercise, various forms of therapy, including problem-solving therapy, as well as CBT, of course. And these interventions are actually listed in the new NICE guidance on, on treating depression, which does recommend antidepressants in some situations, but also helpfully suggests that these alternative measures should be used in many cases before people turn to antidepressants. But if your argument is we should really think of depression as a social condition rather than a medical condition, isn't that going to put psychiatrists like you out of work? It would probably reduce the, the amount of work that psychiatrists had to do, although psychiatrists are also meant to have more holistic training and not only be in the business of prescribing drugs and physical treatments. So psychiatrists can also help people with therapeutic type interventions. But and would they need to be medically qualified? Problems. But, well, that's a good question. And I think for many, many people don't need medically qualified professionals when they're, when they're depressed. And in fact, it might make it worse to be set off on a, on a medical pathway 
that implies that people have a brain disease or some sort of physical abnormality. And finally, can you imagine circumstances where you would ever take an antidepressant? Um, I, I can't. I can't see circumstances where I would take an antidepressant. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky my life is going well. It's difficult to put myself in the shoes of someone who, you know, who is really struggling. So I wouldn't want to say that no one should ever, ever consider using medication of some sort when they feel really distressed. I think some sorts of medication can sometimes be useful temporarily to help people get over a period of real, real distress until they can address life problems when they're in a better state and they're able to actually actually address their life problems themselves. Well, thank you very much indeed, Joanna, for sparing the time to talk for the podcast today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the first episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review on Apple and other podcast platforms. And if you could share the podcast and encourage other people to listen, that would be even better. And a reminder, you can find out more about the podcast at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and also sign up for my weekly Substack newsletter. Many thanks for listening, and hope you'll join me again next week. Bye for now.